There's an intersection nine miles from the Mexico border in the middle of California farm country. A rural road crosses a four-lane highway. There's an alfalfa field to the east and two tired-looking farmhouses to the west. This is where 66 garages accident happened. The crash was reported in a local newspaper the next day, June 11, 1999. It's three short columns. Here's what it says. An unknown man is driving a pickup truck down the highway. He runs a stop sign and is hit by a car. The pickup flips and a bunch of people spill out of the bed of the truck and run into the fields. Two men, two John Does, have serious head injuries. But the article doesn't mention another rumor, something I've been told about the accident. The garage crashed because the Border Patrol was chasing him. I wonder which version, this article or the rumor, is true. Maybe they're both wrong. I'm Joanne Farian. This is Chapter 2 of Room 20, a new podcast from the L.A. Times studios. It's about a man called 66 Garage, who lay in a hospital bed for 15 years, unidentified, and about how my search for his name and the circumstances that put him in a San Diego nursing home changed not just his life, but changed my life too. I finally have a tangible piece of evidence that Garage was in a crash in the desert, a newspaper clipping from the Imperial Valley Press. It takes me a while to find it. It isn't online, and the newspaper's archives from the summer of 1999 are missing. No one knows why. Eventually, I get in touch with someone at the paper who emails me a photo of the story, the only report he can find about the accident. Finally, I've got the exact date and location of Garage's accident, June 10, 1999 the intersection of Bowker Road and Evan Hughes Highway. I use that information to request the official accident report from the California Highway Patrol. But I'm told it's been destroyed. The Highway Patrol keeps accident reports for just four years. With the newspaper article in hand, I drive to the scene of the crash. It's two hours from my house in San Diego to Imperial County. I cross through mountains and into the valley. Here, the soil looks more like sand than dirt. This is desert. The only reason anything grows here is because it's irrigated. Farmers are king in Imperial County. They grow many of the vegetables the rest of the country eats. About half of the workers they hire to pick those vegetables are undocumented. It feels a little surreal to be standing at this place, as though being here might take me back in time I have this feeling that if I can just reconstruct the moment, figure out exactly what went wrong, I'll get closer to knowing who Garage really is. The intersection looks desolate. The desert sky is a perfect blue. The smell of cow dung hangs in the air. There are feedlots in the area where cattle are fattened before slaughter. The newspaper story says Garage ran a stop sign. But I'm standing right at the intersection. And there isn't a stop sign on the highway. There's one on Bowker Road, but not here. Something about the story has to be wrong. Across the road is a tiny house that looks more like a trailer. I get back in my car and drive over. The road crosses what looks to be a giant ditch. It's one of the many canals that carry water to this place. There's a pit bull tied up in front. I love dogs, but I'm terrified of pit bulls. I hope someone hears my car pull up so I don't have to face the dog alone. A woman walks out. Hi, do you live here? Do you live here? 
Yeah, uh, so I, I'm a writer, I'm a, a reporter, and I'm trying to find out... I try to explain what I'm doing here, that I'm trying to figure out what happened to an unidentified man who was in a crash across the road. I want to know whether she remembers if there used to be a four-way stop at the intersection. She doesn't speak English, but then a man who looks like he's in his 60s comes out of the house. Hello. Hi, my name's Joanne. I'm, I'm from San Diego. No, I'm sorry, I'm Canadian. Hi, nice to meet you. His name is Luis Viejas. He's lived at this intersection for 28 years. I ask him if there was ever a four-way stop sign here. Was there a stop sign there tw- when you moved here? Has there ever no, been? No, never. never. Never a stop sign. No, no. Do you see a lot of accidents there? I see, yeah. All the time we have a... He says people drive too fast on this road. I ask Luis one more thing. Is there a garage named 66 or 66 Garage here anywhere? No. No? No, I don't know. Nothing like that? No. No. So no stop sign and no garage, at least according to Luis. I make a note to check on this. There's a little more in the newspaper clipping. It says that two men, including the driver, were taken to the El Centro Regional Medical Center. And that's where I meet Suzanne Martinez, a senior administrator at the hospital. Suzanne's middle-aged, tall, with dark hair. When I walk into her office, I notice a Canadian flag behind her desk. Who's the Canadian, I ask? And it turns out Suzanne grew up in the same small town where I got my first TV reporting gig. Maybe that tiny connection is why she tries to help me. Suzanne's worked at the hospital in El Centro since the mid-90s. In 1999, the year of the accident, she was a nurse in the emergency room here. You didn't see people just coming in for ordinary care. Uh, They weren't coming in with stomach aches, that kind of thing. El Centro is a border town, and in the late 90s, it was one of the busiest areas for illegal crossings. They were either brought in by the Border Patrol, they were in a motor vehicle accident, or... um, We got them out of the desert as unidentified. Suzanne tells me that truckloads of migrants often showed up at the hospital. Some had traveled through the desert for days, tightly packed in vehicles without air conditioning. When they got to the hospital, Suzanne says, many were dying or sometimes already dead. People at temperatures of 108, 109, uh, of course, can't survive that. She says she saw a lot of unidentified patients like Garage, and there was a procedure when they came into the emergency room. We'd cut the clothes off, put them in a bag, um, and work on the patient. Now, usually, uh, we would have someone going through their clothes looking for identification, because our goal is to identify all patients. But if we didn't have it, it wasn't something like we would stop everything and look for it. I start to tell Suzanne what I learned about Garage from the nursing home. Maybe she'll remember him. They think he's from Mexico because he had a phone card, a Mexican phone card, and some pesos in his pocket. So that then you assume that they went through his stuff, right? If they knew that he had that. So maybe he just never had ID. Could have been thrown off his body when he was thrown from the car. Could have been in the car. Could have been all those could have been, you know. I asked Suzanne if the hospital would have given Garage's weird name. She says no. They would be John Doe or or Jane Doe. Those are the two names that we use. And there's something else. I had emailed the newspaper clipping to Suzanne, and she noticed something I had missed. 
The story says the unidentified driver was 19 and the unidentified passenger was 30. How would they know how old these men were if they didn't know their names? If they come to your hospital, and do you put an age on them? No. Um, we might estimate an age. You wouldn't make up a year? No, there's no need to make up a year. I asked Suzanne to search for Garage's medical records, but the accident was so long ago they've been destroyed. Again, nothing. It's still a mystery. It's still going to be a mystery. I can't help you with that. Sorry. When you're buying a suitcase, what do you look for? I used to think my suitcase didn't matter as long as it just fit whatever I could shove in it. But then I heard about Away. Away has created the perfect suitcase built in with key travel essentials to solve real travel problems. So all you have to think about is where you're headed next. They have multiple sizes to choose from, including the carry-on, which is the perfect size to take on any airline. It's made from a lightweight and durable shell and has four 360 spinner wheels that guarantee a smooth ride. The suitcase's minimal design and beautiful color options look good in any context, even when I'm running late to a flight. Plus, the smart features they've included in each bag help keep me organized. I love the built-in battery, since it's always impossible to find an outlet at the airport gate. Now, your phone will always be charged and ready for those extra long flights. For $20 off your own suitcase, visit awaytravel.com room20 and use promo code room20 during checkout. That's awaytravel.com room20 with promo code room20 for $20 off your suitcase. It's been more than a month since I started visiting Garage in Room 20. Now I use Google Translate to try and communicate with them, and I feel as though I'm getting to know them. I'm trying to ask Garage whether he's sad, but it doesn't come out that way. When I was in school in Canada, we learned to speak French. The only Spanish I know I learned in grade 7 from a girl named Paz Munoz. She was from Chile, and she taught me to count. So sometimes I count to garage. Uno, uno, dos, tres, cuatro. It seems to soothe him. Sometimes I count when he's kicking his leg, and he stops. Or I count when he's being suctioned, and he relaxes. I suppose counting is a distraction. The nursing assistants have found their own ways to communicate with Garage, like Maria Mendez. She comes in to check on him, and he smiles when he sees her. I do mm-hmm. see that response. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's a response. And... Like now? Yes. Can you see Romeo? Maria asks Garage to open his eyes. She uses the kid version for eyes, ojitos. Us, like a Spanish mother, we always say that to our kids mm. when they're little. A ver, unos ojitos, unos ojitos. So, those, I, I, I don't know, I'm guessing those, those things are in him. He remembers that, probably. I'm guessing. Like Maria, I treat Garage as though he's a child. I bring toys, things that light up and make sounds, anything I can think of to break the monotony of his day. One evening, I hold up a colorful baby mirror at the side of Garage's bed and tap on the plastic. Do you want to try to do this? This? Yeah, yeah, let's try it. He watches, and then he starts to move his left hand towards the toy. 
Can you let go of this one? He taps the mirror with his hand. Yeah. 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 Garage looks at me and smiles. It almost seems as though he's proud of himself. I record the entire thing on my phone. I think this video is one of the reasons I stay so long in room 20. I don't need any more evidence. Garage is in there. I need to tell you something else here. The other reason I'm spending so much time at the villa. Are you playing nice? Yeah, play nice. That's my mom, Estelle, playing with my niece and nephew in an old home movie. Stand up. She want, he wants you to stand up. Hi, Kevin. Yeah. Are you playing blocks? When my mother was in her 60s, she was convinced she had cancer. A tumor the size of an orange had been growing on one of her ovaries for nearly a decade. Everyone was surprised, including her doctor, when a biopsy showed it was benign. But after that, something changed for her. She began labeling trinkets in her apartment with the names of her children and grandchildren, and Eaton's watch given to her by the department store where she once worked, for Sam, my son, a silver charm bracelet for Mandy, my niece, the Chanel case with a full bottle of number five, the perfume I bought her nearly every Mother's Day, for me. The last time I saw my mom conscious was in June 2008. We were standing in my sister's driveway in Winnipeg, Canada. My mom was in her pajamas with an envelope in her hand and a large box next to her. The box was full of Christmas decorations from my childhood. I was with my husband, my son, and our golden retriever, about to make the 2,000-mile drive back home to San Diego. There wasn't room for the box of decorations in our car, but I took the envelope and put it in my purse. The next time I saw my mother was two weeks later. She was in a coma, attached to a ventilator to keep her breathing. A kidney stone was lodged in her urethra. It wasn't a huge deal when we got the call and said she's in pain and got a kidney stone because we've been through it a few times. That's my older sister. My name is Lori Greenberg. Lori lives in Winnipeg, my hometown, about a five-minute drive from my mom's apartment. The kidney stone should have been simple to treat, but the doctors didn't do the proper tests. Instead, they sent my mom home with some morphine. The next day I got a call and she says, oh, I feel really weird. I'm kind of like my breathing and my dizzy. So I didn't know what morphine, how long it lasts on you, what it does. So I said to her, oh, well, maybe it's just from the drugs, you know. So, you know, and she says, yeah, maybe it is. And then we hung up. What my sister Lori didn't know at the time, what no one knew, was that the kidney stone had caused an infection. I got a call from my older sister saying, go to the apartment because she's having a hard time breathing. So I went to the apartment, got in there, and she couldn't breathe. So it was like I wasn't going to try anything. So I called the ambulance, right? By the time my mom was admitted to the hospital, she had sepsis, a life-threatening condition caused by the infection. But it would be days before she was properly diagnosed. My sister called me that Wednesday night. By Thursday morning, I was on a plane. When Joanne came in, she had to fly all the way from San Diego. So when we went to pick her up at the airport, I remember, I'll get choked up on this one, but I remember the first thing she said is she's still alive. We drove straight to the hospital. I sat at my mother's bedside. I thought I'd be there for weeks or months. It takes a long time to recover from sepsis. I even made my sisters take me to the bookstore the next day so I'd have something to read while I sat next to my mom. But two days later, before the sun was up on a Sunday morning, my mom was gone. She was 71 years old. 
So by the time we saw her, my mom's eyes were closed and was basically in sleep, and we never really ever got to talk to her from that time on till she died. That envelope my mother had given me in my sister's driveway just two weeks before she died, it was her advance directive, her final wishes if she were to get sick and couldn't speak for herself. It would be years before I finally had the courage to read that letter a second time. When I'm not in room 20, I'm often on the road to El Centro. Something I heard from Luis, the guy who lives near the accident scene, stayed with me. He'd said there were a lot of car accidents at the intersection where garage crashed. Suzanne Martinez, the nurse, had said the same thing. So I called the El Centro City Clerk's Office and asked what department tracks motor vehicle accidents. The clerk refers me to the Imperial County Public Works Department. A guy named Dave answers the phone. I ask if he can tell me how many accidents happened at the corner of Bowker Road and Evan Hughes Highway since January 1999. He barely hesitates. I can hear him type the location into his computer. 13 at the intersection and 22 nearby. And on June 10th, 1999, how many on that day? Two, he says. One was a fatal. He says he has both reports right there in front of him. The next day, I go to see him in person. Yeah, so I'm looking for all the accidents and... These are the ones that you were looking for? Oh, wow. Um, uh, the Evan Hughes and the Bowker. Yeah. That one also has a uh, supplemental... And then the so this is from that page. day? I can't believe what Dave hands me. A 16-page accident report. The highway patrol report I was told was destroyed years ago. The word fatal handwritten at the top in black sharpie. And the report is unredacted. So everything is there. Names and phone numbers of people in the accident. It mentions the emergency crews that responded. Fly-by-night tow. Gold Cross ambulance. And the John Doe's. Massive head injuries. And where did it say that it was a hit and run? Like, where do you... If you look on the front here... Oh, hit and run. These 16 pages become my roadmap. Now I can track down the people in the accident and the first responders. The first thing I learn is the newspaper story is wrong. The pickup truck wasn't traveling on the highway. It was traveling on Bowker Road when it sped through a stop sign. I also learned that one of the John Doe's the newspaper article mentioned, the 30-year-old, he dies in the hospital the next day, and he's identified. Oh, was pronounced dead at UCSD Medical Center. And his name, Enrique Luna? So Garage must be the 19-year-old. The accident report also says that Garage wasn't the driver, as I'd first been told. He was one of the people thrown from the bed of the truck. According to the report, the driver had a light complexion and a large nose that looked as though it had been broken in the past, what they call a boxer's nose, and he was wearing a light blue shirt. He ran from the scene. The accident report doesn't talk about a chase with the Border Patrol. The only mention of Border Patrol is the helicopter that flew overhead looking for the driver of the pickup and the others who ran away. But if there wasn't a chase, Why was the pickup truck, which was already nine miles north of the Mexico border, speeding through a stop sign on a country road in the middle of nowhere? And there's something else I still can't figure out. 
How could the California Highway Patrol know Garage's age if they didn't know his name? Next time, we go to the border and find more clues about Garage's identity. What? 15 years? Why hasn't anybody done anything? 15 years. That's a lifetime. To think that there's a family out there that just has no idea what happened to their son, their brother, their uncle. And after 15 years, Garage will be identified. This show was reported and executive produced by me, your host, Joanne Farian. My senior editor was Susan White. Room 20 was produced by LA Times Studios' Clint Schaff and Camila Victoriano, with production support from Neon Hum Media. Special thanks to Sam Tari and Andy Trimlett for production and research help during my reporting. To discover more about the story, go to latimes.com slash room 20.